leaving me with very little to say. At least that's what I told him, but uh, I'll somehow manage. Seriously, as I prayed about what the Lord wanted me to share with you this morning, beginning about two months ago, the title to this message came to me. Radical Grace, Radical Holiness. I must confess, however, that the contents of the message that I originally thought uh, I about were more than ably covered by the, by the messages that Keith and Peter have preached to us over the past two months. And the first message of this series, in case you don't remember, was all the way back on January 25th. began with introducing the new covenant, then the entrance way of grace, and then motivation. It's a matter of life and death, and then charging your batteries. And then newness means new desires. And newness means new abilities. And then from promise to practice. And this past Sunday, knowing is for living. And I appreciate something that I know Evan believes and that he shared with you. We are called to be a community of learners. Some of us resist that. I I hope that we overcome that resistance for every person. Because we're called to be disciples. But these messages in this series have consistently focused on what God has done for his children to make it possible for them to live out the gospel, the good news, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And as Keith and as Peter have unpacked this vital, the vital truths that were promised in Ezekiel 36, to which our Bibles all fall open immediately, we've been reminded that our part is to believe And this is not a passive believing, but a believing that is evidenced by feet that walk out what is believed. Active faith, faith that does what it believes. As I've been increasingly blessed week after week, I've also increasingly been filled with panic. Uh, What is left to say that hasn't been said far more effectively than I could possibly say it? But this morning, uh, I believe God did give me that title. Um, But this morning, I believe God has some things to say to us still about radical grace, radical holiness. And I pray he will provide me the grace to say them. I, I pray that God will give you ears to hear what he is saying, no matter the inadequacy of the messenger. And you'll find this in your notes, but here is the proposition that I want to prove with God's help. Radical grace extended by God to his children calls for and empowers radical holiness demonstrated by his children. Let's pray. Father, you know well, no, I'm inadequate to this task and I'm the wrong one to be bringing it. But Lord, you have provided grace even for this. So, Lord, I ask that you would allow me to say the words that you want said in the way you want them said. But more than that, Lord, I ask that your Holy Spirit would oversee what is said and translate it to hearts. And if I misspeak, as I'm liable to do, Lord, you will not touch our hearts this morning with your call to radical holiness. Amen. Radical grace. First, let me define what I mean by radical. That word came to my mind, and I, 
you know, and I know what I had in mind. I suspect what some of you had in mind. We've heard a lot about the word radical in recent months, maybe the last year and a half of an election. Radical has political connotations for some of us. It has, uh, it, and it has a lot of different meanings. And I didn't realize, the word came to me, and I finally realized after I'd wrestled with it for a mo- about a month that uh, I needed to look up the di- dictionary definition. And I think it's the second dictionary definition and the one that I, the dictionary I looked at. There's one word that describes it that I'm talking about when I mean radical. And that one word is extreme. How many of you have ever seen snow skiers in person or on television? Anybody? Now, some of you know why I'm asking, but... How many have seen any of the series Extreme Skiing? Now, this skiing is unrelated completely (laughs) to the skiing that I and others love to engage in. These pictures and the images that you may conjure up in your mind from watching videos of extreme skiing, let me say this clearly, will only give you a pale, descriptive comparison to the extreme nature of the radical grace that God has extended to his children. And to the radical and the radical holiness that he wants us to demonstrate. Now, by that term, radical grace, I mean extreme grace. I want us to begin to see how extreme this grace is. This is a grace. Uh, someone I asked last night, what, what is that word? I asked somebody last night, what does this word mean to you? And he gave me this. He said, well, he, he, I didn't tell him what I was talking about, but except I gave him the title of the message. And he thought a minute and he said, out of the box. It means out of the box. And that's what I'm trying to convey this morning, that I believe God wants us to understand. The grace that God has extended to us is out of the box that is known in the world we live in. The God of the universe, the Almighty One, has called us, drawn us to Himself, birthed His new life in us, justified us absolutely, forgiven us totally, is now sanctifying us, and He, God, will ultimately glorify us. Now, to begin to understand how extreme this is, we first need to see a little bit more about how holy is God. We also need to begin to see just how putrid and ugly is our sin, your sin, my sin. Now, either of those topics, God's holiness or our unholiness, could occupy more than the limited time we have this morning. But let me take a few minutes to try to provide a backdrop, a little of the backdrop, so we will hopefully be able to have a better understanding of just how radical is God's grace extended to his children. This message is primarily directed to those who are God's children. And by that, I mean those who have been called by God, have heard the good news of Jesus Christ, have believed the good news and have trusted in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, accepting him and his sacrificial death on a cross almost 2,000 years ago. If you're here and you've not experienced this new birth in Christ, I trust that God, the Holy Spirit, through the words that, that I say and what the Holy Spirit communicates to you, will show you your need for a Savior, Jesus Christ, the Savior. And that he would do that this very morning. I want God to whet your appetite. But this message is primarily directed to God's children, born-again believers in Jesus Christ. 
the backdrop. I put this little phrase in your notes. Very profound. God is God. That seems so simple. In fact, I originally had in my notes, and I'll just repeat it here. I told Evan to take it out, but I had God is God. Duh. (laughs) I mean... Now, that that is a simple statement. Do we understand the implications of that declarative statement? Let me call your attention to Job so that we can better understand. You may remember the story. God began the narrative in Job by asking Satan whether Satan had considered Job. And God called Job a righteous man. Satan was convinced that he could cause Job to sin and curse God. God, who knew... Get this, God who knew what he, God, had put within Job allowed Satan to touch almost everything Job had on this earth. Possessions, family, health. He said, just don't kill him. You can do anything else. Even the so-called friends of Job, uh, euphemistically called Job's comforters, were sent to discourage him, not to encourage him. Even his wife encouraged and urged Job to curse God and die. Get it over with. Job did not curse God. But he ultimately began to do what we do. To pour out his grievances and his unanswered questions to God. And for a significant amount of the book of Job, you'll find him doing that and his comforters going back and forth with them. And, but God remained silent. Ever been there? But in an amazing passage of Scripture, which is either the longest or at least the next longest speech of God in the entire Bible, the last four chapters of the book of Job, God spoke for the purpose of causing Job to really see God in his awesome majesty and greatness. I encourage you, you you might do well if you're having trouble getting a comprehension of God, to go read those four chapters. Read them every day for a month. It'll transform your life. Verses, uh, chapters 38 through 41 in the book of Job. I'm not going to read them all this morning, but you need to read those. And an amazing display then of something I appreciate, of cross-examination. God put questions to Job. Questions for which Job had no answers. And those questions told Job, and they tell us something of who God is. Beginning in Job chapter 38, verse 1. And you might want to turn to there, turn there just for that verse. I don't want you to try to follow. I'm going to try to just summarize some of what takes place in those four chapters. But beginning in verse 38, Job chapter 38, verse 1. A flood of questions pour out from God to Job. Out of an awesome tornado, and that's my translation, probably your Bible says whirlwind or storm. Here are just some of the flood of questions God put to Job. But it would be healthy for us to substitute our individual name for each of the yous in this this series of questions by God. Listen to them. Who is this? This is God to Job. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without understanding? Where were you? When I laid the foundation of the earth, who determined its measurements? Surely you know. 
Who shut in the seas with doors when it burst out from the womb, when I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, Thus far shall you come and no farther, and here shall your proud waves be stayed. Have you, Job, ever given orders to the morning? Have you, Bill Treby, ever seen the gates of the shadow of death? Have you comprehended the vast expanses of the earth? Do you send the lightning bolts on their way? Do they report to you, here we are? And the questions go on, and, and they just roll. They keep, I'm just, that's just touching a few of them. They culminate for the first time in Job 40, verse 2, where God asks this question, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? And Job tries to respond, admitting he can't find an answer, and God just brushes that aside and continues. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? In Job's final response at the end of these, this incredible torrent of questions that reveal to us a little bit about who God is, Job's final response is, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. This exchange begins to give us a picture of the God with whom we have to do, with the God who is all-powerful, perfectly holy, who cannot tolerate sin, who must judge any flaw, any lack, any violation of his perfectly pure being. That God, the God who created man, who set man in paradise with everything he might need, requiring only that man obey one command. Genesis 2, 16 and 17, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. You know the story. Adam fell. He broke that one command. He rebelled. He questioned God's authority over his own creation. He violated God's moral law. He revealed that there was inside the human race from the beginning a sinful nature. I can't this morning in this limited time. I remember, I remember a wonderful message that Danny Jones preached to us, what was it, five years ago, six years ago, on the doctrine of sin. And I can't in this limited time develop the doctrine of sin to its full extent. But it's more than just our sinful actions or our sinful failures to act. That, that would be bad enough for us to deserve God's fiery wrath. But in addition, our very nature without Christ is actually bound to sin. Bound to sin. Enslaved to sin. To satisfy God's legitimate, righteous demands, we would not only have to conform our actions and our inactions to God's laws, but we would need to have pure attitudes, motives, pure intents with regard to God and all of His creation. Freshly reminded this morning, driving here and I started thinking something I won't go into the details and immediately the Holy Spirit said what's your motive there it was a good thing it was a good thing I was thinking but my motive for thinking about doing something was not pure God's conclusion about the matter is set forth in unequivocal terms in Romans chapter 3 verses 9 through 18 many other places but this is a passage it clearly sets it out. For we have already charged that all are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. 
No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. Are you getting this message? All? No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Well, you say, well, wait, that's not talking about me. Let's see. Whenever we honestly assess our personal condition, we are forced to admit that the description in Romans 3, 9 through 18 applies to us. Before Christ drew us to himself, that is who we were, both in status and in actions. Paul concludes later in verse 23, all have, uh, of that same chapter, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Let me sum up this backdrop by quoting from J.C. Ryle in a classic book that when you get a little bit up, <laughs> I, I'd encourage you to get this book. Now, it's a hard read. But it's a wonderful read, and it's easy to understand. In fact, it's too easy to understand. It's J.C. Ryle's classic, Holiness, It's Nature, Hindrances, Difficulties, and Roots. And this is just a little quote from it. We are all, of course, familiar with the terms sin and sinners. We talk frequently of sin being in the world and of men committing sins, but what do we mean by these terms and phrases? Do we really know? I fear there's much mental confusion and haziness on this point. Let me try as briefly as possible to supply an answer. And I wish it was brief, but it's about, I'm just giving you a little taste. This is about 60 or 70 pages. <laughs> and that's probably not enough. I say then that sin, speaking generally, is the fault and corruption of the nature of every man that is naturally engendered of the offspring of Adam, whereby man is very far gone from original righteousness, and is of his own nature inclined to evil, so that the flesh lusts always against the spirit, and therefore in every person born into the world, it deserves God's wrath and damnation. Sin, in short, is that vast moral disease which affects the whole human race of every rank and class and name and nation and people and tongue, a disease from which there never was but one born of woman that was free. Need I say that one was Christ Jesus the Lord. And then he continues, a sin to speak more particularly, listen to this carefully, consists in doing, saying, thinking, or imagining anything that is not in perfect conformity with the mind and law of God. Given the perfection and holiness of God for you and for me to have a relationship with him from God's side presents what C.J. Mahaney in a wonderful book that I'll, I'll explain more about it in a minute, uh, Living the Cross-Centered Life. I'll just do it now. <laughs> little advertisement. I know we've got Finally Alive, and that's a book, and I know all of you just think, oh, you're asking us to read too much. And this isn't a demand. It's just a suggestion. Uh, this book, Living the Cross-Centered Life, a few years ago, C.J. wrote a book called The Cross-Centered Life. And uh, it was a wonderful book, and I, I read it. And, and then I've been privileged to hear him preach on numerous occasions. And this new book came out, Living the Cross-Centered Life. And so I said, oh, okay, well, let me look at this. And I picked it up, and I thought I had read it. Uh, you know, I, I looked at it, and I looked on my shelf, and I had six copies because I gave some away, and I still have some. So I'd be happy to give the first four that come up to me. I'll give you one. 
Uh, but I realized on, as I was preparing for this message, I hadn't read it. As what I'd done is I started reading it and I saw some illustrations that I'd heard him use in some sermons. And I, oh, well, I, I'll put this aside because I've kind of seen it. And, and I had never gotten back to it. It's a wonderful book. I commend it to you. But anyway, that was a digression. C.J. calls this God's incredible dilemma. God cannot tolerate sin. For any person who is sinful to look upon God, to come near to God, means instant death. Psalm 5, verses 4 and 6 say, puts it this way, and there's so many passages I could use. But for you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. Listen to this. Don't, don't skip over some of these words. The boastful. Anybody ever boast around here? The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. And we all know that includes people who even are angry. Now, as I said, this message is primarily for people who've been redeemed, people who've been accepted, called, adopted into God's family, Jesus Christ being their elder brother. So why am I talking about sin so much? Believers have been forgiven after all. So why? Am I talking about sin? Because despite the truth that we have been justified and have a right standing before God, He still cannot tolerate sin. And let's be clear about something. In case you haven't faced this truth in the last 30 minutes, Christians, genuine born-again believers, still sin. Maybe not you, huh? Let's face some facts from Scripture. And I, I'm not doing violence from God's Word. by str- These three passages just came together from very different parts of the Bible, stringing these three passages together. Proverbs 21.2, Every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. And then Jeremiah 17.9, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And then... The Apostle John in 1 John 1 says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar. And His word is not in us. And then Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, wrote in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, declaring that mankind is by nature... Lawless and disobedient, ungodly and sinners, unholy and profane, those who strike their fathers and mothers, murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Then in contrast, God is the king of the ages, the absolutely sovereign one who is omnipotent, immortal, invisible, immutable, immutable, omniscient, absolutely holy and pure, without any flaw, living in unapproachable light. And I'm just giving you a few of the descriptives of God. He is the only true God. God is God. Now, how can this dilemma be resolved with this backdrop? An understanding of the nature of God and the sinfulness of people. Let's look at radical grace, the extreme grace that God has extended to those he has called to be his children. The only resolution to this incredible dilemma is God's radical grace. The extreme nature of his grace makes the extreme skier's feet that we saw in the pictures 
look like child's play. Not nearly as extreme as God's radical grace. Now, this is the part of the message I'm much more comfortable talking about, aren't we all? Grace. One reason I personally am more comfortable talking about radical grace is that I know how much grace has been lavished. Sometimes I even think squandered on me. A vast, unmeasured flood of grace was required just for just my sins and for this rebel heart to the extent I even know about it. And don't think you even know about all your sin. Remember, sin is deceitful. And we don't know fully the extent of or even our own capacity for sin in all its ugliness. I think if God the Holy Spirit revealed all of my sin to me right now, and perhaps yours to you, we would be completely devastated and undone. We'd be on our faces. Remember Isaiah? When he saw the holy God in his temple high and lifted up in Isaiah chapter 6, here was his response. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. He couldn't look on God even though he was a holy being. And with two he covered his feet. That's another picture of covering his createdness. And with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. little aside, I'm reading uh, from Marcy Sproul's book, The Holiness of God. And here's the illustration he uses to try to talk about that repetition. Holy, holy, holy. And he talked about his, his granddaughter uh, who asked him to come play with, with her. And uh, this is going to take longer than an hour. Lord, help me. <laughs> and he was busy. But finally, he was tempted to go out and play with her. And he played and enjoyed her all afternoon. A young eight-year-old, I believe it was, granddaughter. And... Um, the next morning he got up and it was a little card that she had written to him. And she was telling how much she loved him. And she wrote, Grandpa, I love you so very, 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 very. And went on for three pages. Much. And he got the point. She didn't have the adequate vocabulary to express how much she loved her grandfather. But by repetition, it communicated to his heart. These, in in the Hebrew language, these three, this repetition, this thrice holy God, meant it was above and beyond, out of the box holy. It was so holy that there's no words left to express it. And that's what the angel said. And Back to the text. And the foundation of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I, Isaiah, I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. This is the ESV version. Other versions say I'm undone. I'm ruined. We don't have enough words to say what fully what Isaiah was saying. He's saying, I'm disintegrated. I'm falling apart. You're, it's, this is, for I'm a man of unclean lips. Sproul calls it, I have a dirty mouth. 
And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Sproul describes this scene in Isaiah this way, part of it. He said, the instant he, Isaiah, measured himself by the ultimate standard, he was destroyed, morally and spiritually annihilated. He was undone. He came apart. His sense of integrity collapsed. Isaiah was groveling on the floor. Every nerve fiber in his body was trembling. He was looking for a place to hide, praying that somehow the earth would cover him or the roof of the temple would fall upon him, anything to get him out from under the holy gaze of God. But there was nowhere to hide. But the holy God is also a God of grace. He refused to allow his servant to continue on his belly without comfort. He took immediate steps to cleanse the man and restore his soul. He commanded one of his seraphim to jump into action. The angelic creature moved swiftly, flying to the altar with tongs. From the burning fire, the seraph drew a glowing coal too hot to touch even for an angel and flew to Isaiah. This was a severe mercy. A painful act of cleansing. Isaiah's wound was being cauterized. The dirt in his mouth was being burned away. He was refined by holy fire. Isaiah experienced a forgiveness that went beyond the purification of his lips. He was cleansed throughout, forgiven to the core, but not without the awful pain of repentance. Those words, awful pain of repentance. Some of you have experienced that. I've experienced that. All of us have not experienced that nearly enough. That was a picture of the meeting of man's sin with God's grace. One great man of God's church in the 11th and 12th century put it with these simple words. Anselm said, the debt was so great that although man alone owed it, only God could pay it. We needed, and if we are a child of God, we have received what C.J. calls a divine rescue. This is radical, extreme grace. We have been declared not guilty based on something we had nothing to do with, based on the sacrifice of His dear Son, Jesus Christ. Maybe my very favorite passage of Scripture, verses that never fail to move me to amazement, to demonstrate to me radical grace, is Romans 5, 6 through 11. For while we were still weak, and that word weak there means without any moral strength or ungodly, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Now that's radical. Compare that to any so-called grace we might know or receive from others in this world. Compare that to the kind of grace we extend to one another. It's not in the same league. It's out of the box. It's extreme. And as a result, we have peace with God. We no longer face the just condemnation of a righteous and holy God. And more than that, we've been given God's indwelling Holy Spirit to work in us and through us to have the desire, the will, and the ability to be obedient to God's law and to fulfill all of His loving demands. Philippians 2.13.
What amazing and radical grace. But right here and now, I must tell you that we will constantly, and this is really part of what the message was that Keith stole, but I want to reiterate it in my own words. We will constantly have to deal with Satan's attempts to cause confusion between our justification, the finished work, and our sanctification, the ongoing work. When we say we have been justified, that means our status before God is this, stamped across our life, absolutely righteous one. That's you. That's me. And that's what we are in Christ, in God's eyes, immediately, not based on anything we do or ever did. As a result of God's radical grace, your rap sheet is not only absolutely empty without any accusations on it. It has marked on it, Jesus Christ's righteousness belongs to this person. He's perfect. She's perfect. That's what your rap sheet looks like if you're in Christ. This is radical. This is extreme. This is not something we easily relate to. But it's true. But it doesn't stop there. So never let it stop there. When God declared you, believer, righteous and wiped your rap sheet clean and stamped it with the identity and record of His Holy Son instead of yours. His record instead of yours. He also began the process of making you a sinner more and more like His Son right here, right now. Even though sanctification is a process, it's a guaranteed process for all of God's children. For those who have believed and trusted in the sacrifice of His dear Son for their salvation, let me say that again. Even though sanctification is a process... By the way... Apply this to yourself, but apply it to the person that you closely relate to, whoever that is. Listen again. Even though sanctification is a process, it's a guaranteed process for all of God's children, those who have believed and trusted in the sacrifice of His dear Son for their salvation. That ought to cause us maybe to be a little more patient with each other, to understand that. Maybe we need to be more patient with ourselves. Although it's okay to be impatient with yourself, I think. (laughs) This work of sanctification is also radical grace. And here's the turning point in this message. As we continue, remember, radical grace. Don't forget radical grace. As we begin to work through the truth that radical grace extended by God to us calls for and empowers Radical holiness to overcome our radical sin. This is a holiness that will be increasingly demonstrated in God's children in the here and now. Please notice, I did not say should be increasingly demonstrated. I said will be increasingly demonstrated. Maybe not at the pace you would like. You know, and sometimes we're very satisfied with the pace in our own lives, but not so satisfied with the pace in someone else's. It's kind of like, might have something to do with the indwelling sin. I don't know. Maybe not. Let's talk for a minute about radical holiness. This is the part of the message that's not comfortable for me to deliver. 
I would much rather speak about grace and mercy. But Keith just left me with this. (laughs) I would rather, in the words of the song, talk about grace unmeasured, vast and free, that knew me from eternity, that called me out before my birth to bring you glory on this earth. Grace amazing, pure and deep, that saw me in my misery, that took my curse and owned my blame so I could bear your righteous name. That's what I'd like to talk about. And I have to some extent. But with this radical grace comes another part of my salvation that I am learning. I'm learning. I hope you learn it much younger than I did. I'm learning this. Just as glorious and given who I am, just as amazing as justification, that is God's calling and empower me to radical holiness. That grace is just as amazing. Calls to holiness, radical holiness, extreme holiness, have the propensity to offend. In fact, you may be offended when you leave here this morning. I hope not. But calls to holiness have the propensity to offend. In fact, calls to holiness are designed to offend and subdue the flesh. Let's go back to our text. And I didn't read it at the beginning. It's at the top of your note sheet. 2 Timothy 1, 9 and 10. And there's a wonderful story about how God brought me to this text that I don't have time to share. But I want us to go back to that text and then add to it a new glimpse of Ezekiel 36. God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Do you see what God is saying here? Look at that carefully. Sometimes these introductions to, the, to Paul's letters, we, they're wonderful. We love to read them, but we just let them go by and we don't look at what they're saying carefully. God called us to a holy calling. And it's not just Timothy he's saying this to. He's really, this is extended to you and to me. And he did not do it because of our works. He did it because of his own purpose and because of his own grace. My thought, if this is wrong, the pastors will correct me when they get back. But my thought is this. You can, they're probably listening to this, some of them may. My thought is this, that God, for himself, does not need our works. Don't get caught up in thinking, God needs me to do something. He doesn't need our works. That's kind of a digression. But he doesn't need our works. We should know this by now. Jerry Bridges says it uh, very well, that even our best works apply this to the thing you think you do that is the most holy, the most awesomely righteous deed that you have ever done. Even our best works are shot through with sin, with varying degrees of impure motives and lots of imperfect performance. Bridges goes on to state the principle this way. Your worst days are never so bad that you are beyond the reach of God's grace. And your best days are never so good that you are beyond the need of God's grace. 
God, you see, is not looking for perfection from our pursuit of holiness. He's looking to empower us and to enable us to succeed more and more in that pursuit of holiness. Now, having said that, taking perfectionism, if you will, off the table, that does not take us off the hook. Go back to Ezekiel 36 and listen to the purpose that God had in mind when he promised he would, and I'm just going to give you some of those promises, just summarize them that we've been... We've heard so well preached over the last weeks. Promised he would sprinkle clean water on them. In other words, cleanse them completely. When he promised he would put his spirit within them. When he promised he would deliver them from all their uncleanness. And when he promised he would give them a new heart. I hope that brings back some of those messages we heard. His purpose is clearly for doing that. His purpose is for those indicatives, those promises. Clearly stated in Ezekiel 36, verse 22. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God. It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name. That was God's purpose for those indicatives. It wasn't just for our justification. It was for that, but it wasn't just for that. It was also so holiness would be displayed. And he goes on to say in in verse 23, twice, I will vindicate my holiness. And later in verse 23, I when through you, I will vindicate my holiness through you. Now, I know we've read these words over the past nine weeks, but not with this particular emphasis. God had a purpose in all he was going to do and has now done through the sacrifice of his son and through the gift of his Holy Spirit. He had a purpose. The purpose was for the sake of his holy name. Now, what does that look like? Now, we're going to look first at what it does look like. And then just briefly, when I finish that, we'll look at what it does not look like. The doctrinal word, and I've already used it once or twice, but the doctrinal word that describes what God is up to here is sanctification. Sanctification is simply God's process of making us holy. It's God's process of making us holy, setting us apart for his purposes, for his holy purposes. That's what that word is about. It's a process. And this is not some low-grade standard of holiness that he's, his purpose is about. It's a high-octane, radical, extreme holiness. Hebrews 12, 14 tells us some very sobering words. Strive for peace with everyone and for the... Let me take peace as important, but let me just skip over the peace for a minute and read it this way. Strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And I want us to focus on that word strive. Strive is a strong word. Other translations render it, make every effort. Another translation uh, says, pursue. This is working language. This is sweat-breaking language. This isn't a suggestion that we sit back and trust God to do the work. He promises to empower us to do the work. His grace motivates us to do the work. My favorite modern teacher of grace, Jerry Bridges, from that same book, Disciplines of Grace, puts it this way. The pursuit of holiness requires sustained and vigorous effort. It allows for no indolence, no lethargy, no half-hearted commitment, no laissez-faire attitude toward even the smallest sins. 
In short, it demands the highest priority in the life of a Christian because to be holy is to be like Christ, God's goal for every Christian. C.J. Mahaney in that same book, Living the Cross-Centered Life, puts it this way. He says, sanctification is just repetition for drumming it into our heads. Sanctification is about our obedience. It involves work. Empowered by God's Spirit, we strive. We fight sin. We study Scripture and pray, even when we don't feel like it. We flee temptation. We press on. We run hard in the pursuit of holiness. And as we become more and more sanctified, the power of the gospel conforms us more and more closely with ever-increasing clarity to the image of Jesus Christ. Wow. That's a challenge. It's a greater challenge than that guy jumping off that cliff. It's radical. Let me get personal if you don't mind. Don't think because Keith asked me to speak this morning I, and I'm here that I have any sense of having attained to this calling to be holy. In fact, this very morning, this entire week, I shared this with Keith before he left, I, I've been freshly reminded that I'm constantly falling short of the glory of God. It's been a rough week of struggle for me. I'm not complaining. In fact, it was God's purpose that it be a rough week of struggle for me. I know that this struggle that seemed to intensify this week was God's kindness to prepare me for this morning by humbling me, using this means to give me a fresh view of my lack of progress so that I can still testify, and I can, that we should not be defeated, we should not be discouraged, we should not be overwhelmed by our failure, even though it's so very apparent. Instead, each reminder of my failures should draw my view to my desperate need for His empowerment, His enabling. God has supplied for all of us, and I want to rehearse them, so many means of grace for my empowerment and for yours. His Holy Spirit-inspired and applied word of revelation. This book, I don't think, I think we take this for granted sometimes. This is a means of grace for my empowerment and for yours. When we neglect it, we neglect that means of grace. Hear me. When we neglect this, when you neglect this, when I neglect this, we are neglecting God's means of grace for my empowerment for yours. He has given me the fellowship of many here and other believers who are on the same path that I am. He has given me the wonderful gifts of repentance and confession. He has given me, he's provided me access to the very throne of God through Jesus Christ at any time in prayer. 1 Thessalonians 4.3 tells us, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Ever wondered about God's will? There it is, simply and plainly. 1 Peter 1, 13 through 16 says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ as obedient children. Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Now, this isn't, this isn't justification he's talking about. This is the process he's called us to by his grace and empowered us to engage in by his grace. There are many ways to describe practical holiness, the holiness we're called to pursue, to strive for, to make every effort to attain. I want to look at some of, just some of the examples of 
the radical extreme holiness we're called to pursue. Let's look at Luke chapter 6, the words of our Lord. In my Bible, it has a little neat paragraph heading, Love Your Enemies. Luke 6. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. From one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Wow, I'm sure we're all doing that every day, right? But that's just a small glimpse of the holiness God calls his children to walk out. Do you, do I, have the habit of doing our best to be of one mind with God? We're called to, as God's mind is described in the Bible. Here's another example, 2 Timothy 2, 24-26. And the Lord's servant, that's you, that's me, must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, not retaliating against evil, enduring it, correcting his opponents with gentleness that God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. I love to ask questions and I believe me, all of these questions are pointed back at me. Do you, do I try to shun every known sin and keep every known commandment? Do we make every effort to do that? You, a little exercise you can do. We love Paul's letters. They talk about grace a lot. I, I encourage you, go in your study. Just make a mental note. Start looking at the end of each of Paul's letters. And you're going to find almost invariably, one, the first one to start is Romans. Look at chapter 12, verses 14 through 21 and see a little bit about what we're called to live out, radical holiness. Let me continue with my questions. Do you, do I, strive to be like our Lord Jesus Christ? If so, it will mean bearing with and forgiving others, being unselfish, loving others as he did, humbling ourselves and making ourselves of no reputation as he did. Not defending ourselves when we're insulted, as he did. Finding times to pray, as he did. Ministering to the needs of others, as he did. Do you, do I strive, make every effort to follow after meekness and modesty and long-suffering and gentleness and patience and kindness and self-control, even controlling our tongues? I hesitate to do this, but I feel like must. That second word in that series that I just gave you, you probably just skipped right over, modesty. Let me put husbands and fathers on the hook here. You need to lead in this area. Of all the women who are in your household, lovingly, if you see something that might pique the interest of a member the opposite sex of your daughter or your wife in the way they present themselves, you have a responsibility in love, in kindness, to say, I'm not sure you understand. I'm not sure you understand the effect you're having. Do we make every effort to follow after meekness and modesty and long-suffering and gentleness, patience, kindness, self-control? 
Do you, do I strive to stop our habit of gossiping? Do we strive to refuse to listen to gossip? Do you, do I bear much, forbear much, overlook much? And are we slow to talk about standing on our rights? I have rights. Do you, do I strive to be charitable and kind to our brothers and sisters when it costs us? Do you, do I actively try to go out and do good to others? Not just stand around avoiding, you know, a lot of us think, I'm doing pretty good just to avoid harming others. But do we go out of our way to do good to others? Some of you do. By the way, this isn't an accusation. If anything is said to your heart, let it be from the Holy Spirit, not from what I'm saying. It's not pointed at anybody except me. And inferentially, you, if the Holy Spirit applies it to you, do you, do I, make every effort to keep our hearts and our minds pure, avoiding even the appearance of evil, fleeing from any situation which we, by experience, know we might be tempted to unclean or angry or vengeful thoughts? Do you, do I, undertake every God-given task at our work, in our home, elsewhere, in the church, wherever it is, with enthusiasm and zeal, just as if we were undertaking that task, as unpleasant as we might in ourselves think it is, for God, not just for our boss or our spouse or our children or our parents. Some one of those has offended us. I bet this morning some one of those has offended some of you. Do we use that offense to deny them our service? Do you, do I, make every effort to keep eternity in our view? In other words, live in light of the truth that our real treasure is in heaven, in the life to come, not in this life. Now that was quite a list I went through with those questions. Maybe some of your toes feel bruised. Mine do. And you might easily say, that's extreme, that's radical. You're right. But we're, are we called to anything less? These demands of love in light of the radical grace shown to us, God's children, are radical. But trust me, they're full of glory. Now, what's the great temptation when someone like me talks to you in this call to radical holiness? Particularly for those of you, and I'm, I know there are many of you here like this, who have a tender conscience. There's a tendency. That tendency will be to be discouraged or to feel defeated. It's then that we must look up to the cross of Christ I've been there. I've been there this very week. Discouraged at the lack of my own progress in the growth and holiness. But then I know I must remember something I've heard before many times and heard even last week in Keith's message. I don't like his ratio. I'll tell you that right now. He said, take at least five looks at the cross for every look at my own performance. I think I would recommend at least a 10 to 1 ratio. 
I think if you look at CJ's book that I've recommended to you, you'll see probably a 20 to 1 ratio. Look at the cross. After Jerry Bridges told us in the quote that I read earlier about the sustained and vigorous efforts required of us, he added in a paragraph down the page, at the same time, however, the pursuit of holiness must be anchored in the grace of God, otherwise it is doomed to failure. Now, I said I would share, you, share with you what holiness in this life is not. And I've said this already, but I need to say it again. In a word, sanctification or holiness is not perfectionism. We are liars if we or any other believer. And there have, there have, been, the te- there have been some preachers that I've heard this preached. I, you know, I live a perfect life. That's a lie. And if that's a lie then why do we so often pretend to be perfect? Now, I know we would never say it in those words. In fact, we'd say, oh, no, no, I'm not perfect. That's kind of a common phrase that comes out of our mouth. But the old statement is true. Actions sometimes speak louder than words. What I mean by that is this. Why do we, as believers, have so much trouble admitting our weaknesses, our failures, our sins? That's a trick of Satan. We need to overcome it. Why do we sometimes even lie and cover them up or dissemble or twist it around so that somehow we're justified or somehow we can, we should be able to get away with that? Why is that? Surely it's not because we think we have perfectly walked out this new life. But our failure to admit readily, confess readily, seek repentance readily says to anyone looking on, I think I'm perfect. I don't need to. I don't need to confess. We put all kinds of masks on it. Our actions by failing to confess, admit, repent, lies and says, I don't need that. I'm perfect. Let me go back to Pastor Ryle. Step on our toes a little bit more. People who are habitually giving way to peevish and cross tempers in daily life and are constantly sharp with their tongues and disagreeable to all around them, spiteful people, vindictive people, revengeful people, malicious people, of whom, alas, the world is only too full, all such know little as they should know about sanctification. Have you met people who call themselves Christian who bear some of those marks? If not, then after the service, come and introduce yourself to me. And you will have met one. I've often been one of those people. That God is helping me. How can I best say this? Maybe I should give an example. My own common, what I call combo sin, of impatience and arrogance. One night this past week, I was reading something probably to my shame in preparation for this message. And in my arrogance and impatience, I began to answer a question put to me by my wife without even letting her finish the question. Oh, yes, in my self-centered pride, I thought there was something in the beginning of that question that was criticizing my behavior. And if there had been any criticism and there was not... It would have been justified. 
But in my impatient arrogance, I snapped out an answer before her innocent question was even fully asked. My harsh reply to the unfinished question was ugly and nasty. It didn't take me too long, just about 20 minutes too long, to confess my sin to Nancy. And she was wary of accepting my, understandably wary of accepting my apology for a time. As I at first, and then in that 20 minutes I was trying to do what I think many others do with whatever their particular pet sin is. Internally, I was trying to justify my ugliness. God was kind to let me know that my defense was not washing with him. God was even kind enough the next morning to lead me. Coincidentally, of course, and Judy Gambino, she's listening, will appreciate this for reasons you'll have to ask her about. Coincidentally, coincidentally, to Proverbs 18.13, which says this, If one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame. He's a fool, is what that's saying. What precedes this in the 12th verse of the 18th proverb is this, Before destruction, a man's heart is haughty, but humility comes before honor. Ouch. My combo sin met the double whammy of God's word. This kind of sin in me needs to be put to death, mortified. In other words, killed. I am called by the mercies of God to do that. God's wrath, if it were not for his mercy, would justly pronounce the death sentence on me the one exhibiting that impatience, that arrogance. Thank God he granted me repentance and my loving wife forgave my impatience and arrogance. But there you have it, one example of the ugly nature of sin that I and that you must constantly fight against. It is a war. Your common sins may not be nearly as ugly or nasty, but believe me, we must be about putting those sins to death. Not excusing them, not blaming our sins on someone else's sins. Oh, how we can rationalize. In my case, I didn't even have that shoddy excuse that someone else caused it. Even this inventive lawyer's mind of mine couldn't come up with one. I had none. It is a war, but the good news is... We win because of the radical grace of God in our sanctification. We win. Don't give up. Paul wrote it this way in Romans 7, Who shall deliver us from this bondage to indwelling sin? Those patterns that we either coddle or struggle with. He asked that question. And the answer is plain, and he gives it in the 31st verse of chapter 7. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And now, the reminder I must give you. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We have to come back to that every time. Or Satan will use... Our struggle against sin, which fails 
and succeeds, grows, falls back. He will use that to pound on us and discourage us from proceeding in the battle. That's a lie. We win. Kurt, if you would come up as I finish. The glorious gospel, the good news, is that we are being sanctified. God will complete the work he has begun in us. Yes, we work, we strive with joy to obey God's word. We read his word, we pray, we fast, we memorize and meditate on scripture. We are eager to show ourselves students of our great God and his son. We share the gospel with those around us. We serve in the local church, all with gladness. There are many things God commands us to do or refrain from doing, and we pursue those things. And our obedience pleases God. And it brings joy to us as well. He doesn't need our works, but he enjoys them. His blessings and his testings cause us to love him more. But not one of those activities contributes one ounce to our salvation. We are never more loved or more saved by God than we were on the day we were justified. So our work is motivated and empowered by the grace of God, which includes the grace gift of his indwelling Holy Spirit. Paul writing to Titus chapter 2 verse 11, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us, to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. God calls us and he empowers us by his radical grace to be living, breathing demonstrations of radical holiness. We should be about making every effort without any condemnation when we fail, as we will. Talking about holiness is um, hard to do. But it's necessary for us to contemplate. Kurt's going to lead us in one of the songs we sang earlier. I want you to catch the meaning in those words, particularly in the chorus. And when they're finished, I, I want to then pray for us. I suspect some of you who have tender consciences feel beat up. Don't. Don't, by God's grace. Those failures, those things you've struggled against that you are still struggling with, God looks at our rap sheet absolutely clean. Absolutely clean. And not only that, he says, this person is perfectly, absolutely righteous in my sight. With that knowledge, with His Holy Spirit, let's be about making every effort. Stand with me. Oh,
walk out holiness in such a way that those extreme skiers look like child's play. That our lives would be such that when people see them, they would say, that's extreme. That's extreme. Lord, that's what we want. We want that not just as individuals, Lord. We want that collectively as a church. Not for our glory, not for bringing fame to Lakeview Christian Center or to us, but rather to bring fame and honor to the one, the only one to whom it belongs, our Lord. Lord, we want to walk in a manner worthy of the high calling you've given to us, to be radically holy. No excuses, Lord. Work schedules, no excuses. Obligations outside of our lives before you, no excuse. You gave us the jobs, Lord. You, you gave us those means. And we're to be about those jobs in a way that brings honor and glory to your name. In a way that people look at it, that's extreme. Take complaining words out of our mouths, Lord. May no root of bitterness grow up in us, Lord. Give us, give us the person of your son that we can increasingly demonstrate that to a world who desperately needs to see something different, something radical, something extreme. Lord, do that for your glory. In the name of your son, Jesus Christ.